Welcome to VPG's virtual water cooler chat podcast, where we share lessons and stories of women professionals to help empower other women and expand a greater circle of influence. So we walk our journey with those who understand and appreciate us. Today, VPG's Generation Innovation Junior Learning Engineer, Sydney Ricks, will chat with Dr. Karina Brink on our virtual water cooler chat. Sydney is a senior majoring in statistics at Virginia Tech. She is also a music lover and enjoys learning about data analytics. Dr. Karina Brink is an IM1000 attorney. She is head of IP at Intuicell, a Swedish artificial generative intelligence startup and founder of the Brink Consultancy, her Nordic UK consultancy for strategy and CXO level IP issues. In addition, via her role as a consultant patent attorney with 2IP, an innovative full-service IP firm based in the UK, she also offers patent drafting, prosecution, infringement, validity, and litigation support. Karina loves gardening, walking her two dogs, playing the piano, painting, and collecting art. She is currently in the midst of transforming her 1930s Tudor-style home into an energy-efficient home of the future. Dr. Brink is a European and UK patent attorney who has worked with innovators and inventors for over 20 years, both in-house and in private practice, working with clients of all sizes, mostly in the physics, communications, med tech, and green tech sectors. She has seen firsthand how rapidly AI and ML innovations are pervading human society and strongly advocates for ethical AI. She has previously supported clients using AI in fields as diverse as electrical grid energy distribution, battery management, digital twin IIoT for smart factories and engineering systems, autonomous vehicle and vessel systems, and health management and screening. The next generation artificial general intelligence she currently works with at Intuicell takes a new direction for AI and empowers machines with the ability to think and act more like humans. It is our honor to present you today's podcast episode. Let's get started. Good afternoon, Dr. Brink. It's a pleasure to meet and get to interview you. So thank you for taking the time to uh, allow me to interview you today. My name is Sydney Ricks, and I'm an intern at BPG for this summer. I'm a junior learning engineer, and I'm also an undergraduate student studying at Virginia Tech I'm studying statistics right now. I've heard so much about you. Before we get started, I wanted to ask, how did you first meet and connect with Ashley Chung and Virtual Patent Gateway? Gosh, well, it's actually classic networking, uh, a contact. I used to work in the UK for British Telecommunications and Deepa Vargas uh, worked there. And she is a member of Ashley's network. And her sister is actually also one of the um, panels that I'll be uh, talking at later, Ashley, about AI and ethics. So it's a classic sort of, oh, you've got to speak to so-and-so. It's like, oh, hey, I'll reach out to them. And here's an introduction. And it just shows how useful it can be if we just, you know, um, uh, reach out and, and speak to our former colleagues and things, particularly when you're, um, you know, embarking on new ventures, just to see if there's people they might know in their network who can help you. Right. That's amazing. Um, like you were just saying, I know you're overseas over in the UK. Uh, can you start by telling us about your upbringing and just where you grew up? 
Right. Wow. So I um, grew up south of London, so not quite in the centre of London, although I did grow up uh, for a little bit of time in the centre of London, but basically what we'd call the burbs or suburbia. Um, but it was actually uh, mostly in a part of London many people have heard of called Wimbledon, where the tennis is. So <laughs> it was quite a multicultural part of, of London. But it was a very um, interesting place when I was young to grow up because um, London's such a multicultural part of the UK. We actually forget, uh, now I live outside London, um, just how rich the different cultures are in, in, in London. And I think one of the ways of exemplifying that is actually when I was studying to be a patent attorney many years ago, every time a new country joined the Patent Cooperation Treaty Organization, which is a way of getting a, a an application handled internationally at first, we'd always be able to find a restaurant, no matter how obscure or small the country was, where we could have a meal and celebrate that country joining. And it just you know, it's it certainly really opens your mind as to just how diverse everything is when you can, you know, find a very small <laughs> and go, yes, there is not known as a community, but there's a really good restaurant probably to find as well. So I was very lucky to have that. Um and uh to also just have so many friends from different backgrounds and cultures when I was growing up, because I think that um richness when you're growing up in your your friends and also later when you're working with your colleagues it gives you a very um uh open aspect you know and you're very tolerant of different outlooks and that's great for being a pattern attorney because we need to look at things from different angles and just touching right. base with colleagues gives you that different perspective and often is really helpful wow that's <laughs> great so amazing to hear about your exposure to just Again, so many different backgrounds. I wanted to ask you more about your educational background now. Yeah. Um, oh, right. That. Yeah. So I um, went to university in London as well. And uh, the first uh, university I went to, because I've been to several there, uh, was uh, at University College London. And that's one of the sort of older um, institutions. And I studied astronomy and physics there. And you may think, why astronomy? I think because basically I probably had my head in the clouds when I was growing up. I found it fascinating just the you know how, how did the earth come into being you know there's the religious angle obviously and there are actually some analogies you can take to that to a lot of physics they always say many physicists become actually quite religious as they sort of explore the existential um questions but what's really i think i found fascinating was um understanding how we can learn so much about an environment that's so distant from us just from looking at you know um uh, uh light signatures and the spectra and what we're seeing in different wavelengths and that's indicative of different matter and also i did a lot of programming i built a cosmic ray telescope with my sort of bare hands and kit uh with a friend of mine uh who went on in fact to, to, to sort of do more practical research so that was a it was a really interesting um undergraduate degree but what i found actually later on the most useful part was a summer project i did um i uh, was lucky to get on a program that shell ran called the shell um technology and enterprise program i don't think it's still going but they had sent me on a placement to a firm who did optical sorting equipment and this was my second year sort of 
you know, summer vacation. And I was quite lucky because I won the London Regional Prize in the end. But what I did was I looked at optical sorting patents and there was no internet really in those days to do a, a web search. There was no Google patents, nothing like that. And the director literally kept his patents in the bottom drawer of his filing cabinet, you know, and they came out in times of emergency. And my project was because he was retiring and he wanted to make certain that people would know which patent to find, you know, if one of their competitors decided to do something or and they wanted to take action so that was my undergraduate degree and then Mm -hmm. after that I was really lucky I won a summer internship at CERN which is in Switzerland where I got to program the uh, emittance measurement of a beam of antiprotons it was called the low energy antiproton ring and so one of my summer student opportunities there was to go and stay in um, uh, just outside Geneva and it was an international program so I met lots of uh, people who were sort of you know French and Italian and German and all the European governments who had contributed to funding of that and that was really interesting not just because I got to practice my French and ate lots of wonderful French food and cycle around lots of French vineyards at the weekends there's a bit of a, a theme and Swiss vineyards but let's be honest I was there for the French wine <laughs> um, but also just I got so many really amazing um, friends out of that and I'm still in touch with some of them so that was fantastic and then I came back and I went to uh, Cambridge University and I did a graduate course in applied uh, mathematics and theoretical physics. And I was there when Stephen Hawking was there. Occasionally we would see him um, and his nurses uh, in the common room. And that was a very mathematically challenging and focused course. Mm. It was fascinating to do. Um, I found it um, a really interesting opportunity and I actually got married (laughs) and so after that course I actually went to America and I actually audited some courses at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa (laughs) and I did lots of programming there for about a year and then I came back started my PhD at Imperial College now it's a long story my education And I did a PhD in space physics, and that was analyzing data sent back by the Ulysses spacecraft from um, Jupiter. So I um, got to really look at the interplay between particle physics and planetary physics, because Jupiter has a very strong magnetic field. The Earth has one, as we all know, and, and that actually has a purpose. It protects the Earth's surface from a lot of, uh, of the magnetic activity of the sun. And some of that we see when it gets particularly active. We see the aurora or the northern lights or the sunlights, you know, wherever, wherever you guys were. But um, when Jupiter, because it has a moon called Io and other moons, they emit charged particles and they spiral along the magnetic fields. They're quite heavy, so they distort that magnetic field into a current sheet. And I looked at some of the activity um, that occurred in that um, current sheet and I sort of modeled that so I got quite a an exposure there to um, modeling um, physical uh, phenomena from a theoretical perspective and when it came to sort of writing up I was thinking gosh you know I've got I, I didn't want to continue in research I wanted to get out of research 
research. But at the same time, I really realized I love actually finding out about things. And so I thought maybe I could go into applied research. But I I, then I thought about that project I did when I was an undergraduate and thought, "Hmm, I don't know if I want to sort of work for the European Patent Office or the UK Patent Office, but I rather like the idea of going into private practice. And so that's what I did. So my education sort of fortuitously in a way I think um, gave me the opportunity to have a very um, I suppose inquisitive mind when it comes to both technology and culture and these days when I do interview people who are looking for a job I often ask them the telling question which is what did you pull to pieces as a child just to figure out how it works and I was terrible I pulled to get <laughs> to pieces a very small tv set to my mother's extreme anger but it's sort of built from that so I think you have to have sometimes for what we do in the patent world a very open mind but also be quite curious as well as having all the sort of you know intellectual and analytical skills and I think that's what makes the difference I I love finding out about new tech that's what makes my day and and I find it really interesting so and I think my education I was very lucky um, has really helped with that. Are you kidding? That is an extensive educational background. <laughs> it doesn't stop there. But after that, I started to work and then I actually got more um, skills, but I learned them sort of as part of my work. So I actually have a master's in telecommunications for industry, which uh, British Telecom funded. And when I was at uh, Nokia Technologies, they were um, very kind. And I was able to go to the University of Strasbourg and study European patent litigation. So they were two I think, quite relevant courses. And I I did those whilst I was working on a sort of, you know, every now and then there was a module basis. And I think it's one of the things I also learned as a child because my mother was a teacher. You know, you should never stop learning and never, if you can, and it's going to be relevant to what you do with your career, miss an opportunity. You know, if somebody, I, I, I could have done lots of, I didn't have to do either of those courses, but they helped, I think, first of all, the the course I did on sort of uh, telecommunications for industry because I wanted to understand the broader picture as a patent attorney you just dive in and look at one area of tech you have a broader picture it's actually quite interesting because you think hey maybe there's some value to this here that the inventors haven't necessarily mentioned And, and with Nokia um, particularly, in fact, it's just literally this summer finally happened. We have the unified uh, patent court and the unitary patent uh, uh, system. And I wanted to learn a lot more about that because I was doing a lot of claims charting um, when I was at Nokia and a lot of litigation support. And it was very relevant to that to get a broader perspective on how some aspects of the UK um uh, you know, and and uh, uh, German and French litigation processes differ just in terms of the fundamentals, and also how uh, you know the Unified Patent Court might hopefully resolve some of those differences. So that it is it. I promise you, there's no one. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to make sure that I completely understand. So it was your inquisitive nature and just your passion for learning and desire to continue learning that helped you apply your your STEM background, like your physics and your applied I, mathematics? I think, to- oh, I, I think it was the fact that uh, as a patent attorney, you need, you, you often mm-hmm. embrace, some patent attorneys specialize in a very narrow tech area. 
And I've done that in, in industry, but even then it's still quite broad. You know, communications can cover everything from optics, which I, I said, to sort of network management software. But um, but you still have to ask the right questions to not just understand the technology, but also what value is it going to bring to the business? And so I think I've quite been quite lucky that I apply that knowledge to um helping people gain quite useful, whether it's in-house or in, in private practice, useful patent rights. And when the patent rights are particularly useful, that's when you start to think you might want to take them to appeal because often you'll get into a situation and it can be the UK Patent uh, Office, the European Patent Office, the US Patent Office. But mm -hmm. in the case of the US, of course, there's always the option and many, many overseas applicants go, oh, we'll file a continuation. We won't take it to appeal. And they're overlooking, I think, an opportunity there, particularly, I mean, obviously you could use the PTO for inter-parties, but from the perspective of understanding the benefits, I think that's something that's um, sometimes overlooked. But that understanding of how commercially important a case could be, and also if you've drafted it, you know, trying to get rights that will be as commercially useful to the applicant, whether it's claiming the smallest teeny weeny bit that could would have to be infringed to to replicate what it is they want to do or to claim something that's going to give them the largest licensing revenue because there's they're not necessarily they're normally not the same thing it's understanding the commercial context and the technology and what the applicant wants to proceed and i think my educational background has been quite useful because it's given me the confidence to ask the right questions and the ability to analyze the information that I'm given to sift through sometimes a lot of information to what is the sort of, you know, the key or what we call in the UK, the nub of the invention. So, <laughs> Fantastic. My next question is a career-based question. So I want to know how can businesses keep pace with the rapidly advancing AI technologies while also fostering like the responsible development side of it? That is actually a really good question. And I think it's, I mean, obviously some, there's the sort of two sorts of AI development. And I'm going to focus on people who will really be just applying AI rather than creating core AI, new AI model. And there it's a question, I think, of picking the right partner and understanding the data that you'll be using. A lot of AI focuses on the model, but actually those models will not work unless you have the right data set. And it's how you acquire, curate, and perhaps provide some oversight into the governance or providence, really, of that data that's often overlooked. And whether it's, uh, you know, anonymizing data correctly or ensuring whether you maintain your data in, in separate domains and how you might manage that from perhaps a, a sort of um, a, a data federation um, perspective. The most important thing is to just basically ensure that you really know what you're doing. So if you're partnering with one large provider of AI services <laughs> or another, they will have totally different sometimes licensing terms and obligations and also potentially limits on what you can do within certain fee structures or, you know, so sometimes you'll have the AI made available for you for certain contexts of use, providing you don't, you know, ever sue the, the provider of those services. You know, if they decide, hey, that's so great, we're going to do it now. And you suddenly find, oh, we can't sue them. <laughs> we can sue anybody else, but actually they're the ones who are going to dominate the market. So you need to understand what it is you're doing and understand the 
market that you're hoping to address. And that's also important from a regulatory perspective, because if you don't know where the data came from, is it how how depersonalized it, how, how has it been anonymized? What is it that you want to do? You can easily, and there will be increasingly uh, this to bear in mind, you know, regulation that could impact what you're doing. And I think going forwards, people will want to know how is their data being used? Is it being used mm-hmm. responsibly? And, you know, well, okay, so you're you're using that data to make this decision, but maybe people aren't comfortable. You know, you you might not, I, I wouldn't want my, my personal medical data to be used in certain contexts. Some I don't think I'd have a problem with, but, you know, it, it would be really nice to know this. And I think understanding, um, you know, the the responsibility that you have for the decisions, being accountable, um, you know, not creating a system that will put your competitors out of business by lying to their customers. (laughs) I want to know if I ring a phone number, I'm getting through to the business entity, not being diverted to another entity's AI chatbot system. And I'll think, oh, hold on, this is a bit strange, but okay, you know, and you hand over the credit and then you realize, well, well, you're not. And so, We've got uh, an environment now where I think rather than it being a bit like the Wild West with everybody rushing forward and just clamping their, you know, their stake in the ground saying this is ours. Now people are having to establish, actually, do you have the right to claim that? And how are you using that terror, you know, information? And are people happy that you're using it in that way? And where did this data come from? You know, and how, how will you be using it? Very early on, I came across a situation, I have to be a little careful how I phrase it, where somebody wanted to know they could patent something and it related to, um, and this is years ago, about 20 odd years ago now, and it would be well published, but um, whether you went, if you went into a particular place, whether somebody could recognize your face and link that, if it was a shop, to your children's birthdays to work out whether you'd be buying your child a birthday present. And I was like, whoa. Wow. You know, wow, that that's <laughs> I don't quite feel comfortable with this, you know. At all. But that's something, so, you know, the idea was, of course, it would be very, very helpful. You just go into the shop and the shop assistant would say, oh, are you looking for so-so? And of course, I, I don't really want a shop assistant to know, you know, and it wasn't necessarily, you know, it could be your, your, your entire family. I thought that was a bit extreme, but it got worse than that because they say, oh, yes, and they can link this with information from your credit card about your spending habits around that sort of time in previous years to work out what your likely budget would be for said child, wife, other half, you know, <laughs> business. And it was, you know, and I was like, whoa, okay. I, I mean, I, I could see there's a business case for it, but I wasn't really comfortable with it. And that's the sort of thing we're seeing. And uh, another example I could give is, you know, I think businesses have to think about what they're using and also set up an AI ethics policy and share that with their partners like their patent attorneys and have an environment where it's okay to speak up because there's no point in saying if you're not happy with something just keep it to yourself and get on with it you know you're not helping anybody if you have a policy to report possible AI ethics violations if everybody's so afraid they never speak up because sometimes they'll be wrong or sometimes the original intention could be fantastic but actually something's happened and and I've come across this from a patent perspective as a patent attorney I have shouted out there was a a firm I worked for they had an AI ethics policy and I came across a case which was really interesting and and yet 
hor- horrifying the way it would have had to go to get granted because the original intention um I have to be, uh, well, it, it, it's published now, but the original tension was the AI system would see what your religious background was and everything like this. And it would it would decide what content you would see and how a story would be written when you worked to a certain, say, news site. Now, the original idea behind it was to ensure that children would not see violent stories. So they'd see a sanitized version of the same story you know so a parent could see with all the graphic detail and horrific pictures and a child would just see you know a very sanitized sad story version but um when it came to the actual prosecution and we had to distinguish from prior art i suddenly thought i can't argue that um this is different because it basically censors information so that you only see what the system has decided you will want to see based on your religious or political views mm-hmm. and things like this, which was the other side of it. So I called that back. So so I did shout that out and they did decide to drop that particular pattern because they realized that really wasn't what was intended. And that wasn't the message of the way that they wanted to apply. So that's a, a really good example of a firm being responsible realizing that actually what it wanted to get it couldn't get but actually also did it really want to have a patent to cover that sort of technology it wasn't really the sort of technology they wanted to focus on and i sort of you know quaking going hey i'm not sure about this and 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 and, and being heard so when you find something you know reading it acting on it it's not just patent attorneys it's not just internal employees it's anybody who comes across a situation where they think the ai is not necessarily acting in an ethical uh, manner or being used in an ethical manner or the decisions are biased and we've all heard of hidden bias but um the only way sometimes of really understanding that is when somebody shouts up because they think that they've been treated by a system in a way that wasn't um you know appropriate or 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 correct and you just have to shout out so in a way i think businesses have to be more open to having their ai systems challenged if they want to you know um, implement ai responsibly and therefore they have to have a more open policy than they might otherwise have if they used other technology and i think that's something for a lot of businesses to think about you know choose the right partner yes develop the tech understand the data understand the impact of the decisions that you'll be you know making with that data what are the insights you're providing and have something that allows people rightly or wrongly to 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 challenge and be heard and to be considered because that will only lead to better ai systems i really liked what you said about holding businesses accountable mm, can we yeah. talk more about i guess more characteristics of a leader and how you would describe your leadership style Well, I've led several teams over the years and I've been, you know, parts of teams at different levels in the organization. I think my leadership style when I'm working with a team obviously depends in part on their actual leadership role, but it's normally based on trust. I'm very strong advocate for building a team. And sometimes you don't get a choice. You have to just work with the team, but you have to develop trust you have to trust people to fail sometimes and to learn from that lesson and trust that you know uh, when 
you'll have to support them and that they'll let you support them. But it's also about communications and about relationship building. And I think teamwork for me is is hugely important when I'm a leader. So it's not necessarily, you know, I say, hey, we've got to do this, but well, this is what we have to achieve. I think this might be one way of approaching it, but be open to having others shout up because that way you can often get the support of a team and they will at least understand what you're trying to achieve because sometimes it's tough being a leader. We've all had to say, hey, we've got to do this. You've got to, in in a patent perspective, hey, we've got to analyze all these by X date and, you know, and and sometimes it's, it's incredibly difficult um, you know, or, or you're working with a new client and you want to ensure that they receive the best possible service and you have to sort of, you know, ensure that the resources are there to, to, to provide that support. But sometimes your team just doesn't have those resources and you have to manage that interplay internally and externally. But if you have a, a, a strong sort of teamwork ethos, if people realise that you are an approachable leader, in other words, that they can trust you just as much as you can trust them, I think that is very important. So I tend to be fairly hands off and just let, you know, once I've given somebody a sort of reasonably clear remit and direction, just let them find their own path. But at the same time, sometimes it's important to ensure that the team that you're leading actually do function as a team. And that means they communicate with each other. And um, I've got a couple of examples I can give you actually here. Well, one was when years ago um, when I worked in industry and I had a small team under me and we had to look outside the research area to look at uh, patents closer to, uh, you know, the the end as it were, product development. Uh, And the idea is that we catch innovation that came about just before everything was sort of launched and made public. So it's quite quite time pressured. And it was very hard sometimes to get some teams to uh, of researchers or developers as they were to engage because they saw us more of a, as a delay. And the message we had to get across was actually, no, this is a way of adding value to what you do to the company. And the challenge the whole team had was actually having meetings with people to get that message across. And this was really where I, I learned the value of setting up a team that has a support network, you know, because we would share best practice, you know, hey, put the invite for the meeting in the first two lines. Otherwise, they could say they don't read it, you know, little best practices, things like that. Um, sometimes just going along with a team member to a meeting. Somebody I had who's a very experienced pattern attorney in my team had a meeting with some open source software uh, coders um, right when open source was getting up and lots of resistance to patenting and he went and he said oh they're tough I said I'll go along with you to the next meeting so we went into the meeting room and they had a poster on the wall with a, a sort of a, an atomic mushroom cloud and in front of it a, a hung sort of effigy of a human being with little briefcase and underneath it the logo death to all pattern attorneys and I said to him I said well I see what you mean <laughs> let's see how we can get on we took that with a pinch of salt but yeah. not everybody is going to want to cooperate with you and that's where leadership really comes in it's supporting your team in getting their job done and also maintaining relationships within the team with the rest of the business and it's one of the the joys as well as the challenges of being a team I I like being a manager it's hard work though it's a lot harder than you think until you've done it and then when you've done it it's even harder so it's it's something um that's a 
it's very different from what's often the work as an individual patent attorney will do, where we just, you know, we have our deadline, we have our clients, we just work in our little bubble. And lots of lawyers also work that way. Um, and it's it's only when you sort of um, have to do the management roles and you see the context of how an individual has to work within a large organization and interact. Uh, first of all, it opens up huge areas of work that you wouldn't otherwise be able to tackle. But it's also as a manager, you know, quite, um, I think, uh, interesting because I think a lot of patent attorneys in particular and some lawyers are the same, but less so. I think they they, they, they suffer sometimes from what I call the personal skills. And that's because we're very focused on what's often a written procedure. And unless they interact regularly with inventors, it can be quite challenging. So it's quite interesting managing people with, with different skills like that and, and helping them develop. And I think the other area of being a leader is nurturing talent, you know, helping people, recognizing um, where they could develop additional skills, but also, and it's a challenge even I have, everybody has this, in recognizing when you need to develop a skill. You know, because we're so busy with our lives, it's something. It's only somebody else who says, "Hey, you know, you can, and you, know, you can do this." You know, have you thought of doing it this way? Or actually, you know, do you know about something? You know, and you say, "Oh, yeah, that's brilliant," and that's again something as a manager. Ideally, you want to have a team where that culture of sharing best practice, communicating, but also being open to criticism. And that's something, even as a manager, it's important you get feedback from your team. What works? What doesn't work? You know, do they think you're horrible? You know, why are you always saying they have to get in before, you know, whatever hour o'clock? <laughs> I had that from somebody I managed was who did not get mornings. It was, <laughs> you know, um, uh, but you, you learn these skills as a manager. So I'd say if you're given the opportunity to be a manager, um, embrace it. But it's a very different job from being uh, just doing your sort of individual practice. And in fact, when I was at Nokia, they used to have two separate career paths for people, um, even in the, the patents area. Do you want to do management or would you like to sort of develop yourself just as an individual into a sort of special expert? Because it's not for everybody, um, but it's really interesting if you give it a go. That's what I would say. Amazing. Like, pretty much everything you said not everybody can lead but effective leadership like you said takes hard work and it's just a skill that comes with its own set of unique challenges exactly uh, yeah uh, what other unique challenges it doesn't have to be leadership related but what other challenges have you faced throughout your career and how have you overcome them i think the first challenge that anybody has um, is and it's harder actually for a lot of people these days because of AI screen is actually getting into the profession. Sometimes it's really hard to get that first step in. So I was writing up my PhD and I think I just wrote 20, uh, you know, blank letters to all the leading patent attorney firms. I found them off the professional website. Uh, somebody, I found a, a site that linked to, in the UK, it's called the Chartered Institute of Patent Attorneys. And, you know, just, just picked uh, 20 firms, looked at their websites. And so that, that the hardest challenge that anybody faces is actually, I think, finding the right 
um, environment for that first job and subsequent jobs in your career because it's so different. One, even in private practice, each firm will have a different uh, perhaps leadership style. They may have a different um, day-to-day office environment. These days, some firms support hybrid working or you can work from home. And it's not necessarily, you know, great to work. Hybrid, I think, is best, but some firms are really, you know, going, oh, we're not so sure about this. And I think they're losing sometimes the bigger picture there. But it, as a manager and having managed people, I think you can cannot undervalue the the water cooler movement you know it's like you get together and you have a chat with your friends and I've always been lucky because I've had challenges like managing an international team of 14 people and some of them on one side of the world in the US west coast and some of them are in uh Finland which is you know, <laughs> then there's some in London and you're thinking okay and then I think maybe possibly some people in China and you're thinking okay how am I going to manage China US west coast central Europe eastern Europe all in one team meeting you know that's a challenge so I can tell you I think the sweet spot was it worked out to be I think 10 p.m but I can't remember which time zone but everything else went in sync but I'll get back to the main question which was when it comes to making that career entry you just have to persevere and and do what it takes I had um believe it or not very little idea of really what a pattern I knew what it was and what it looked like, but I didn't really understand it because in the UK, you get a lot of on-the-job training. Some people can do now, they do a course before they apply to go into the profession. But in the UK, you can actually do it once you've got your academic background and passed all your your university exams, you can actually go in and learn in a professional environment. So I actually qualified that way, which meant I really didn't know too much when I entered the profession. And so it's quite a steep learning curve. But I think the other almost like a uh, thing to remember is once you've got in, it's up to you to navigate your career, you know, but it will be challenging. And if you're, you first, you don't succeed and you really want to do it, keep pushing because people appreciate that perseverance. So that's a challenge that um, I, I think I applied to 20, I got two interviews and one offer, you know, so, and that was completely just sending the letter. And of course, these days it would have all been scanned by an AI system and I have no idea, maybe I'd have had more, maybe I would have had less. But um, I think it's it's very difficult for applicants these days because the job market is so competitive to stand out. So I would say, you know, look at um, whatever opportunities you get and network like crazy, because at the end of the day, you'll be working with human colleagues. And if you can find a way to make that contact, that can only stand you in good stead. So that was one challenge I had. And then I think another challenge, I've had challenging management situations. And the, the biggest takeaway I could think I've ever taken from that is don't let, if you're managing somebody who's in a development needs um category don't let their problem become yours because it actually as a manager i really care for people i mean most managers do you know they want their team to do well and if you can see somebody struggling sometimes you start to try and you know um perhaps get too um involved to try and help them progress you know and it took it was a very hard lesson i learned that actually sometimes you have to accept that you can't fix other people's problems you have to let them pass or fail or go their own way you know but if you you cannot facilitate too much so the challenge there is recognizing your limitations and allowing other people's space 
to either grow or to fail, but respecting that space. And that can be very challenging because we all, you know, you see a friend, you want to help say, oh, you shouldn't be doing that. You should be doing this. And that's not necessarily the right thing to do, but it's hard if you, you know, if you like somebody, if they're a friend, you want to help. And sometimes the hardest thing, the most challenging thing is to give them that space and, and let them sort themselves out. So that's that's another challenge. I've And in various contexts, I've come across that. And I think, oh, the last challenge I've had is basically life-work balance. And it's why I've chosen my current career path. I, it, as a patentee, and everyone knows this in the legal profession, in-house, in private practice, we work silly hours. You know, we we go on holiday, we take the laptop, we take the laptop, the <laughs> iPad, we take the mobile phone. There's normally a separate suitcase. My husband's also a patent attorney. You know, there's like IT equipment. It's virtually, you know. <laughs> and then we have the big battle of don't look at it. If you look at it, I'll look at it. No, don't look at it. You have to look at it. So I would say the challenge is finding a hotel with no internet connection. <laughs> <laughs> it's getting harder these days and i i do yeah. know one patent attorney who would go scuba diving in the middle of the ocean because he said it was the only way no one could ever contact him except by satellite phone inside emergency so um wow. so yes yeah, so that's the thing give yourself time and Another thing, and I think it's it's a challenge to, to learn, but we all need to learn it, is actually value yourself, know your own worth. Mm. Because lots of people, you know, we, we were so keen to do things, but actually at the end of the day, you've got to, uh, and it's not just valuing who you are in a sort of monetary sense, but also valuing your personal time, valuing your space, um, you know, valuing what it is that you want to achieve. And I think particularly women, we have, you know, so much pressure on us, you know, raising kids, looking after husbands. They still don't teach man management in schools. I think it should be compulsory and there probably should be a female management course as yeah. well. Because, or maybe relationship management would be more diplomatically correct, actually. But we have to, you know, we we have cover every other skill in a school apart from the one that everybody hopes we master in the playground automatically. But actually, these days, with so much technology involved, we really need to how to, to, to work at how to balance, you know, what we do and, and cut off. And it's really hard to achieve that. So I think that's value your time, value yourself, value your family, value your friends. They're key messages and they're very challenging to learn. But if we can always bear them in mind, that's really good, I think. Amazing. That's all of the <laughs> questions that I have for you. Unless you have any final thoughts or any other key takeaways that you wanted to share? From, from a career perspective, I think um, always try, and we can do it so easily now, again, with uh, you know sites like LinkedIn, um, try and make contacts uh, with everybody you've worked with, you know, see every now and then check in and say hey what are you up to because you never know particularly I think sometimes as a as a female practitioner we're always a, a, we're not necessarily quite so confident reaching out because we're always concerned oh how might it be perceived are we being a bit pushy or something obviously some people might perceive that but most people understand if you reach out to them and say hey how are you doing particularly if you're starting your own venture or looking for a new role they'll understand you know you want career advice and guidance and I've I've actually had people who've contacted me 
um, you know, out of the blue saying, hey, I can see you've worked in private practice and industry. Have you any career tips? Um, uh, and that happened to me quite recently. And I talked about what that person wanted to achieve. But lots of people, I think, are happy to share their insights. Obviously, it's not, you know, I'm not a career advisor, but right. we mentor people. Um, our, my professional organization has a mentorship program. And uh, there's lots of, I think, opportunities because I think IP is becoming so important um, all over the world now. And yet it's still um, not overly accessible as an academic discipline in universities. It's sometimes touched upon. Um but it's quite important and it's a very interesting career path to follow. You will never be bored being a patent attorney, um, but you have to make certain that you don't work too hard. That's the right. thing. <laughs> well, thank you again. This was incredible and very insightful. Well, thank you so much. I think you asked some really good questions and it's been really <laughs> nice um, speaking to you. And I wish you all the best in your careers. Oh.